0: Okay, chapter 8 now, verse 1, and God remembered Noah. Now, let's, what are we going to make of that? God remembered Noah. Well, Genesis is in places written from the perspective of human beings standing here on earth. A <clears throat> classic example of that would be the record of creation in, in chapter 1. So, God remembered Noah. You could take it as, well, Noah felt that God had forgotten him. I mean, don't forget, there were about a year in the ark, and as far as we know, there was no direct revelation from God, uh, and God remembered him, that is, as he perceived it. And if that is the case, then this would be one of a few indications that Noah's faith was not absolute. Uh, You see that, I think, in God deciding to, to spare Noah by grace and he was only righteous in God's eyes. Not, uh, I suggested in the first talk, not that he necessarily was righteous, but according to Hebrews, he was heir of the righteousness which is by faith and not by works. <clears throat> and, of course, you got this uh, business about him getting drunk uh, in, in chapter 9. Uh, and there's a few other indi- <clears throat> indications that his faith was not absolute, uh, maybe making the whole which we're going to think about uh, later on in this talk, uh, to let the dove uh, and the raven out to, to see what was going on. But there was an element of impatience there in him, which, of course, is quite understandable. It was a scary experience uh, being locked up in that boat. Uh, but God's remembered can also give rise to a few other thoughts. I emphasized in the last two talks the, the role that the angels play. In, in the flood process, in what I call the mechanics of the whole thing. Now, now and again, we do come across what I would call the language of limitation, whereby God is spoken of in very limited terms, like he remembers something, implying that, well, he had forgotten, but now he remembered. And, well, maybe that this is appropriate because it's talking about the angels. You'll notice uh, this is Elohim in verse 1, God in, in small small letters, uh, not not Yahweh, but um, to to be remembered before God can also mean to, to have mention made of you. It's rather like when Joseph is in prison, you remember he foretells the dreams of the, the butler and the baker, and he, he says to the butler, please remember me before Pharaoh, he means make mention of me. So it could be that God remembered Noah in the sense of the angels, the Elohim, made mention of, of Noah before the council of heaven. There is this idea in the Bible of a council of heaven. The clearest example, I think, is in 1 Kings 22, where God says, right, Ahab's going to die away of Gilead, and all the angels are there on the right hand, on the left hand, and he said, so, so what do you reckon? And they come up with different ideas, and one of them says, well, I'll make his prophets lie to him. God says, right, that's it, you're the one, off you go. And so the angel is empowered to do that, and he goes off. So there is this idea of uh, a council in heaven where God discusses his intentions, his plans, with the angels. And it could be that this is a reference to that, that the Elohim remember that as they made mention of Noah before God. And then there's go uh, going on in verse. 1 of chapter 8, and God made a wind to pass over the earth. Well, Psalm 104, verse 4, God makes his angels or his spirits winds, So he makes his angels spirits or winds. So then it could be that the angels suggested this to God and God sent out a wind, God makes his angels uh, winds, Psalm 104, verse 4, to pass over the earth and to make the waters assuaged. But there's a few other ideas. God remembered the righteous in Sodom, we're told, Genesis 19, verse 29, in response to Abraham's prayer. The idea of God remembering things is also connected, I think, with uh, with prayer. And so I wonder if God remembered Noah um, because of his prayer. Um, you've got the uh, number of examples of where God is described as remembering somebody because they had prayed. Um, So it could be that Noah was there praying for a shortening of the days. Because God didn't actually say ahead of time how long this whole thing was going to take. Um, And maybe God shortened the uh, intended time because of Noah's prayer. And again, I think that's relevant to the last days, that the days will be shortened, else otherwise no flesh would be saved. That time periods can be changed by God in response to human prayer. Uh, about God remembering as a result of prayer, uh, Genesis 30 verse 22, uh, we're told that God remembered Rachel when she was praying to God to get pregnant. So, the idea is connected with with prayerfulness. So then, maybe he was there praying for, of course, the the days to be shortened, for the end to come, which is is quite understandable. And so the waters returned, verse three, the waters returned from off the earth continually, in in going and returning. This is really the language of the surges of these huge tidal waves that would have been caused by these what are called the fountains of the deep being broken up. I we got that in verse 2 of chapter 8. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain was restrained. So, I mean, these are underwater eruptions that have been huge tidal waves. Now, that means that it would have been a very rocky ride in the ark. They weren't just floating around. They it, they were absolutely being blown around and they Huge tidal waves hitting this, this boat and rocking it all over the place. And of course that is a picture of our, our life in Christ, is it not? But we are saved in Christ. But it's not a passive ride, and it certainly will not be in the last days. Now, chapter 8, verse 6. We need to have a little look here at the translation. Chapter 8, verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Now, the Hebrew definitely means the window which he had made. Now, this is not the same word, this is not the same word as you have in the AV of chapter 6, verse 16, where God says um, that, he, that Noah should make a window to the ark. The RV has light, and I did mention earlier that that is, a, in an earlier talk, that that is a, a, a definitely a wrong translation, the word definitely means a light. I suspect the AV has said window, quite wrongly, um, to try to connect with this idea of uh, Noah making uh, a window in chapter 8, verse 6. But it definitely is is a totally different word or a totally different meaning. And here in chapter 8, verse 6, it definitely means a window, an opening. So he opens the window which he had made in the ark. Now, he wasn't told to do that. He was told to make a light, but not a window. So, it seems to me that Noah made a window. And out of that window, he sent forth a raven. Verse 7. In wanted to know what the waters were drying up. Now, I think there you see something of the humanity and the weakness of Noah. Now, I don't say that to knock him down. I mean, as you know, I think he's a, he's a great guy. Uh, but rather great, great, great believer. But his greatness, like all these characters, is really because of his weakness, because, I mean, he was just a, a man like we, we are, and it would have been a terrifying experience, stuck in that ark, um, only with, with God's light, no none of the light, the natural light that he was used to, um, being tossed around for, for a year, nearly. And then he, well, he sends, he makes this window, this little opening, uh, must have been pretty small, because it talks about... Uh, verse 9 of him putting his hand out of it and pulling in the dove so it was more of a, a spy hole and again that's what i would have intended to do if i was noah stuck up in the, stuck in that ark shut in by god and you're there for ages and ages and the months go by well, what's going on why don't we make a spy hole i mean that's absolutely normal but I wonder if it's uh, an indication possibly of a lack of faith. It's just typical of how we are. How long to the end? I mean, it's quite normal. How are things going? It's the usual question, I, I, I do believe. Now, this idea of sending out two animals to know the state of the land, I have said that in, I think, the first talk, that a lot of the ideas in Genesis are the seedbed not only for the rest of Scripture, but they, they, are, they set up themes that then follow through the Pentateuch, the, the whole uh, book from Genesis to Deuteronomy that Moses wrote. And I think this may connect with Moses sending out the spies to know the state of the land. And I think that that was really a lack of faith, that the angels had gone ahead to know the state of the land. Uh, they knew it was a good land. They didn't need to send any spies out there. Uh, God had told Moses that he had gone ahead, and if they just kept going, they would take it. And in fact, he was sending those spies out that caused all the problem. I mean, the 12 spies. I mean, uh, originally they came back and said, No, nah, we can't do it. Uh, and so the people ended up kind of rejecting God and wandering 40 years in the wilderness. Anyway, verse 9. <coughs> The dove goes out, but found no rest. It's the same word for Noah. She found no Noah. There was no Noah out there. And she found no Noah, no rest, for the sole of her foot. And so she returned. Now, the same Hebrew words here all crop up in Lamentations 1 verse 3. This is where uh, Judah has sinned and... and, uh, They're scattered amongst the uh, the nations, and they find no rest for the sole of their feet as they tramp the Gentile world, and yet they were to return to to God. Verse 9, so she returned. Now, I think there's a definite allusion to this in Psalm 116, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 116, verses 6 and 7. Uh, Actually, the whole of Psalm 116 has got a number of allusions in it to Noah and the flood. Well, I'll leave you to work those out. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, to your Noah. Return, O my soul, to your Noah. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So, the person writing the psalm feels himself as a simple dove, the Lord preserves the simple, flying over this, this shattered world, looking for a place to land, doesn't find anything, only to return to the Lord, to his rest, to his Noah. Now, a couple of times in the psalms, the, the, the writers liken themselves to, to a dove. Now, this may not be sort of quite the uh, the Western way of using literature, but this is definitely the Hebrew way of interpreting scripture. Um, Those writers were aware, of course, about how the dove had gone out, flown around, and finally rest, and went back to Noah, and so they thought, "Uh aha, that's me, the simple little dove. I went out into this world, and I didn't find what I was looking for. I did not find that rest. Israel didn't find that which which he searched for uh, and so I come back to the Lord, to my rest, to my Noah. Now, of course, the context there in Psalm 116 is, is, is not exactly relevant. But the image, the picture of the, the dove flying around this destroyed, broken world, and yet not finding any place to land and coming back to Noah, to her rest, the psalmist says, this is like me. I, I come back. to to the Lord so then verse 9 Noah put forth his hand and pulled her in, very same words, Genesis 19 verse 10 the angels put forth their hand and they pulled Lot into the house and shut the door same words also used about how Noah was shut in the ark, the door was closed and he was shut in by God, presumably through angels now, what I think that may suggest is, you know, Lot was you know, somewhat wayward um, and he was pulled in from the world by God's grace through the angels. And it's sort of it's a connection of, uh, of thought there. So then, verse, uh, verse 10 We're told that um, Noah stayed another seven days. And that is a terrible translation. Because this is the Hebrew word that is translated to be grieved or to be destroyed. We've got it in chapter 6 verse 6. We we looked at um, where God was grieved at his heart. And this word is translated elsewhere, to be in anguish, to be wounded, to be exceedingly grieved, to travail, to be wounded. My soul is sore, pained within me. I am pained at my heart, Jeremiah 4.19. It's use about a woman in pain, in travail, at the time of birth. So uh, it's terrible. Uh, translation doesn't mean that Noah stayed, like, well, he hung around uh, for another seven days, just hanging out. No. He was really grieved and distressed for yet another seven days. He was really distressed. So then, what then was his motive for making the spy-hole, what was his motive for sending out the, the dove, etc.? Well I suggested just now that it was partly maybe weak faith, a, a sort of an impatience to know the end, and I think that was part of it. but. It surely was also a huge sorrow at the lust. That he was deeply distressed for the plight of this world. He was hoping, I think, that the dove would return with some sign of civilization, even some hint, maybe, of human survival. He had this huge grief for the world that once was. He preached to them, don't forget, for 120 years. So he didn't think, well, that's their problem. Uh, He would have thought of the guys he bought wood from, maybe. The faces of the women his wife had bartered with. Memories of his own brothers and sisters. And yet he was grieving for it. And I said that they have not only sniggered and laughed at him, but I'm sure that they also persecuted him. I also wonder whether when he, he... he goes and gets drunk, which we'll talk about a bit later. I wonder if it was partly because he just couldn't handle it all. He just was so gutted at what had happened. Now, there should be in us, as there was in Noah, a grieving for this world, just as there was in God. So when we're told that in verse 10, that he grieved, he stayed, in this terrible mistranslation of the AV, uh, he grieved for yet another seven days. Um, His heart was the heart of God. God grieved, chapter 6 verse 6, and Noah grieved. Now that is a challenge, to have a heart that is broken for the last. That is so grieved for humanity. This is very different to the smug sort of attitude which I'm afraid one meets in some of our circles, whereby we're almost rejoiced that the world, of course, they're not interested. They're this, they're that, and we are so much better than them. And uh, there's almost a sort of a, a shrugging of the shoulders that, well, yeah, we preach the gospel to them, they don't want to hear, and so therefore I don't give any opinion for those people, that's their problem. Uh, those who've heard it and don't want it, they're going to get judged, and well, that will be their problem. Look, this is a, a totally wrong attitude. I, I know that uh, many, many leading lights in uh, our communities have come out with this kind of attitude and exemplified it and written like that. But I'm sorry, this is absolutely wrong. God grieved over that situation, and so did Noah. Noah had the heart of God. i repeat it again, the mind of God on this matter. 6 verse 6, God was grieved at his heart, Eight verse ten, Noah grieved for yet another seven days, and sends out another, and sends the dove out again, so it is grief for the lost, which is, is really so important, now he, he sends out the, uh, the dove to see if the waters were abated, And and that word that's translated uh, abated, that's in verse 8. He sent the dove out to see if the waters were abated. It's the same word you find in verse 21 here of chapter 8. I will not again curse the ground. Curse and abated translate the same Hebrew word. So he wanted to know if the waters were cursed from off the face of the ground. He, like God, took no pleasure in the destruction of, of the wicked. So then, lack of response to our preaching, and I mean, he had it for 120 years. This should concern us, it should worry us, it should grieve us. Really, it should. And I i wonder how many of us really have that. A grief for the lack of response. I have told the story, and I will repeat it. Again, well, I know I've said this a number of times in the various talks and stuff, but I will say it again of how when I was a young fellow, maybe 16, 17 years old, just baptized and we had a campaign and distributed a load of flyers and we had this talk in a hall and nobody came. Uh, absolutely nobody. Well, I went to the toilet and I opened the toilet door and oof, there was an old brother standing there and he hadn't locked the door. and uh, like, he was crying. And I was like, well, are you all right? He said, yeah but, yeah, but nobody came, did they? And I have never, ever, ever met anyone who has had that level of grief for the last. And it wasn't that he was, you know, some sort of highly emotionally unstable person. I was surprised because he seemed to me quite normal, balanced, stable kind of person. And so it should be that we should grieve for the last. And we keep asking ourselves, there, internet forums, discussions, chats, emails, how can we preach more effectively? Well, I, I'm not sure that technique is the answer. Of course, technique plays a role and has a, a, a bit of a relevance to the question, but I don't really think so. It is the state of... I mean, I don't think it's the ultimate issue. It is the state of, of our heart. It is a passion for the lost. That is what it is, I think, the prerequisite for successful preaching. Now, verse 11. The dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. Now, sorry, but again, a poor translation. Leaf there is definitely better translated branch. So she comes in with an olive branch in her mouth. Now, 2 Peter 2 verse 5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, but the Greek uh, really means a herald. He was a herald of righteousness. Now, in the uh, ancient world, heralds carried an olive branch, like Mercury was the herald garden. He had an olive branch in his hand. So he might have understood that Noah might have understood that now he was to be the, uh, the herald of this new age of, of righteousness. And that he was to go out into this world with this message from God. And uh, again, the olive branch uh, was uh, in the hand of the, the herald, was really supposed to, to reconcile people. Holy France was actually thought to have power over over snakes. Now, whether to, well, I mean these ideas apparently were, were current in the very early history, so whether Noah picked up on that or not, I don't know. Such a tragedy, but with that encouragement to go out and take this wonderful heralding and message uh, message of righteousness into the world, he he comes out of the ark and and gets dead drunk. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. Now. The dove comes in with a broken off olive branch. Now, there's one other place in the Bible that you read about a broken off orin- uh, orange branch, uh, a broken off olive branch, and you know where that is. It's in Romans 11, 17 to 24, where Israel is described as a broken off olive branch that needs to come back to God. So then. I think that the, whole, uh, that the whole message here is pointing forward in a specifically Jewish context to Israel's return from Gentile dispersion and God's judgment. But the dove flying around over this, this broken Gentile world, finding no rest for the sole of her foot and coming back to her rest, to her Noah with this broken-off olive branch, you know, identified with her in her mouth, this is clearly talking, I think, about, uh, or meant to look forward to, how Israel, uh, and all God's true Israel, should come back to him. Isaiah 54, verse 9, God says that when his wrath with Israel is accomplished, it will be seen as the waters of the flood, and that the cessation of his anger with Israel and his acceptance of them again Speaks um, <clears throat> is spoken of um, really by the, the abating of, of the waters of, of the flood. So then, we are Israel in many ways, and we are like the dove. This little picture that's this snapshot that's been taken of a dove flying around this, this broken, destroyed world. Looking for a place to land, but you don't quite find it. Now, it may mean it, it may take you a few months, it may take you years, it may take you decades to figure that out. But there is no place to land. Maybe you, you, you like Israel, can spend, as it were, millennia trying to figure this out. Like Solomon, try everything there is under the sun. But in the end, it isn't there. There is no rest for the sole of our feet. And we have to come back, in the end, to the Lord. So then verse 12, and he stayed another seven days. Now, A.V. really made a mess here. This is not the same word as in verse 10, where he was grieved for another seven days. This uh, means to be patient, to wait, to to trust. And so, he waits patiently for another seven days. Oddly enough, that's sort of alluded to, I think, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 8, where Saul carries, same word, seven days, but then he impatiently offers a sacrifice rather than waiting for the Lord. See, I think that's how Scripture is written, that it all sort of comes together, and it's all sort of alluding to, uh, to itself all the time. These snapshots are taken, and maybe you may say out of context or whatever, but they are then applied... People and us and, and situations and, and Israel um, because it's also visual. You, know, you can visualize this whole situation with the flood. And most of the people who have been God's people down the years were illiterate, and uh, that's why I think the, these things are picked up and, and alluded to. So then, verse 13, and it came to pass in the 601st year, that's of Noah's life, the waters were. Dried up from off the earth, and he looks out, and behold, the face of the earth was dry. But it's really that word really means waste, destroyed, desolate. And again, I wondered if that's one of the things that led Noah to to hit the bottle in in chapter 9. Anyway, verse 17 bring forth with thee, with you singular, out of the ark, every living thing that's with you, etc., etc again and again, Noah is set up as the saviour. In verse 20, he builds an altar. Now, he wasn't asked to do that. This was on his initiative. There had been no altar stipulated previously. God had asked Noah to build an ark, but now, on his own volition, he builds an altar. And I think that's that's how God works with us. That he may, in, in our earlier spiritual life, uh, he revealed his commands to us, and we all I think legalistic when we're first baptized, we first baptize. We see commands and we, we try to do them, but then later on we we learn from that and go on on our own initiative. And God smelt verse twenty one, a sweet savor. Now that word sweet, Nikoa, is translated uh, is related to the word Noah. Noah's sacrifice was a Noah and noarchic savour to God. So Noah was his sacrifice. That's the point of the wordplay, that the sweet that Noah sacrificed, that God smelt was Noah. Our lives are sacrifices being offered up. Just as the Lord Jesus was an offering of a sweet-smelling savour, Ephesians 5, Noah was his sacrifice in that sense, as we are to be ours. And we each have this unique smell to God. There was the smell of Noah, the sweet savour there's a smell of Duncan, there's a smell of Cindy there's a smell of each of us to God and and that's wonderful, but we have a unique relationship and God is so touched by this that 21, we get a a unique window into the the very heart of God, and God said in his heart he he didn't uh, go and tell Noah this what God says to Noah is later on in chapter 9 but at this point we're told when God smelled the sweet savour, the Noah the savour, he said in his heart, now isn't that amazing that we can touch the heart of God, that we, little people down here, can touch the heart, the very inner mind of God. And then God makes, makes a concession. He says, well, I will never again use a flood to destroy the earth because the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Well, God knew that, didn't he? He knew the imagination of man's heart was evil. But it's as if God, in a sense, reduced his expectations or he cut us some more slack. He made concessions to humanity and God does make concessions. Um, You you see it in putting together the Bible teaching about about marriage. Particularly, God cuts people slack um, for the hardness of Israel's heart. God allowed them, the Lord Jesus said, to divorce their wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now, if God can cut people some slack, if God can make concessions to humanity, we also ought to have the same spirit. This is absolutely not the same idea as saying, well, this is cut and set in stone, and that's it. Uh, but this is the whole problem with, with legalism. <clears throat> now, of course, on the other hand, I, I mean... You can can take it all to to an extent where God's principles mean nothing, and we can no longer tell right from wrong, and of course I'm not saying that. But I just think it's wonderful that because of Noah, because of the the Noah savor, the smell of Noah, Noah serving God on his own initiative, he touches the heart of God, and God makes a huge concession to all of us. So then, let's think about this idea of serving God on our own initiative. Because it's not just a case of, you know, legalistic obedience. God said do this, God said get baptised, so I get baptised. Now what else have I got to do? Um, As we mature, I think, in Christ, we see that we're in a, a live relationship with Him. And we serve Him on our own initiative. And I want to ask you, In what ways are you using your initiative to serve God? Because one of the problems with church life or ecclesial life or being in a denomination, not that there's anything wrong with these things of themselves, but the whole thing gets so structured. The whole thing gets so institutionalized so that individual initiative is kind of crushed. Not not purposefully, not intentionally, but that is what happens. And yet, the whole beauty of what we've just read here is that, okay, God told Noah to build an ark, and he does that, Uh, and now he says, well, I'll build him an altar, and he makes a sacrifice, but, you know, God didn't tell him to do that, and it just touched the heart of God, and so that's the final thought then for this session, let's go away and think about how we can take an initiative, no matter how small it might be. Sending somebody a card. Phoning somebody. Maybe putting a little advertisement for the gospel in the shop window. Whatever it might be. Getting hold of some flyers and distributing them. Leaving them around the place. Just some little initiative. Printing some business cards, and calling cards. Um, advertising the gospel or some website or, or whatever. It, it, there's, you know millions of options and opportunities here, but let's now go out and think how we can take the initiative and how we, in our turn, can give God a unique savour, a unique smell of us, so that we touch the very heart of God Almighty.